Every so often um, at Hope, we do um, what we call a Q&A Sunday, which is an opportunity for people just to send in questions. Um, and then we just have a go at sort of talking to them questions and seeing what we think about them. And um, I, I'm not going to say answering them, because um, I'm not sure that uh, we always get to answer them fully, but at least we can discuss them and talk about them. So um, I've got a few questions here that have been sent through um, for today, and I'm just going to spend... Uh, probably about half an hour just working our way through and then we're going to come back Andrew's going to lead us in a communion talk and lead us in communion this morning the children and young people are going to come back and, and join with us um, for for that um, I mean I, I don't know whether it's a sign of wisdom or a sign of madness that we do a Q&A Sunday because yeah. uh, I suppose in a sense you know <laughs> you don't really know what people are going to ask and um, then you, 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 know, you put yourself in a position where you've got to try and at least say something um, about the question that's been raised. So uh, I'm not quite sure whether that's a... Um, and um, may, may, maybe we should do a Q&A Sunday behind a paywall. You know what I mean? I sort of send an invitation out, and if you pay £50, then you can come and sort of listen to the answers. Or maybe I should do it behind a member's wall. You know, you have to be signed up to membership to be able to sort of get in on a Q&A Sunday. Anyway, we've not really tended to operate like that. I'm, I've always tried to run sort of a, just an open policy on... Uh, what our thoughts are, what our finances are, what our hopes are, what our disappointments are. And, and so, you know, uh, at my age, I, get, I don't guess that I'm going to be changing um, that approach, to be, to be honest with you. Um, and so as, as I look at these questions this morning, I, I don't want you to think that I, I put myself out there as somebody who knows all the answers, because uh, I really don't. Um, and the truth is, I probably feel like I know less of the answers now as I get older than what I did when I was younger. I would have been more dogmatic in certain areas. <laughs> Um, and uh, lights are changing for us. Um, but anyway, let's... Uh, and the other thing to say is that I've asked for these to be sent in. I have pre-read um, all the questions a couple of times, but I've not particularly formulated an answer in the sense I've not, I've not written myself any notes to answer the questions. So I'm just going to read them out. I'm going to think about them again. I'm going to talk to the questions, and we'll just see where that, uh, that leads us, eh? And, uh, and we'll do it. We'll do it like that. So here, here's a first question. They're going to come up on the screen for us. Um, I've been feeling such profound disappointment with God around a few relationships and people's behaviour, and also my health has not yet seen uh, healing physically. And wondering what advice, suggestions you would give to help navigate this time um, in a healthy way. Well, that, that's, that's a real-life question, isn't it? Um, because I think, you know, we all carry uh, disappointment from time to time. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know whether you have been in the category whether you would feel have felt some level of disappointment uh, in your own walk and relationship with God. Certainly this individual um, did and, and has. Um, it goes on to say around a few relationships and people's behavior. Um, let's just think about that for a moment. Uh, th there is no need for anybody to stay in the confines of a toxic relationship. You know, if, if you find yourself in a relationship that's toxic and horrible, then... You've got one life to live. I'd pack your bags and go. Um, why would you do that? I think if you can feel that there's a way forward, then that's well, probably a different thing. But 
if relationships and people's behavior is starting to affect your health, then I think that's really quite a difficult place to be. There's a few things that you can do. I think the first thing that you can do is you can put yourself in the context of another trusted relationship and start to take some advice about that. Um, whether that's, you know, a pastor or a really close friend or a counsellor, um, wherever that might go, I think, you know, there's definitely value in, in doing that. Um, I don't know whether your disappointment with God should be linked in with the negativity of that relationship, because I'm not sure that it's God's remit to change the behaviour of another person. I think it's your responsibility to determine the boundaries that you're happy to live with in the context of that relationship and what you're not happy to live with in the context of that relationship. And so I would, think of, I would start to say, well, you know, what, what are your boundaries here? Um, are those boundaries being infringed? Are they being just walked over? Um, or when you assert a boundary, is that boundary being respected? And I think if that boundary is being respected, then you're starting to put in the foundations that you need to then begin to build on that relationship and see change coming in the future. Um, one thing that, and, and I think this, this happens, it, it can happen in any relationship, and, and marriage is probably a good example of it. Uh, they say, well, it's, it's all going to change when we get married because I'm going to change him or I'm going to change her. Well... I think that, um, I mean, I'm not commenting on that. Um, I, I, I think that people are people. And we are intrinsically who and what we are. If you're stepping into a relationship with the hope that you're going to change that individual, then good luck with that. If you're stepping into a relationship with the thought that this relationship is going to change me, then you're on the right track. Because the only person that you have the power to change is yourself. And so in that context, I wouldn't want to assert disappointment towards God particularly. I'd want to look at the relationships, the importance of them, the history of them, how long those relationships have been there, whether there have been good times in the past that can be restored and redeemed. Now, there's lots of things that are going off there that I think you have to think about um, and then begin to unpick that and move forward. But if you've been trying to do that yourself for a long time and you've not got anywhere, then my suggestion would be to find somebody that you can confide in and have some of those conversations outside of your own head because that can often be really, really helpful in terms of moving forward. Another question... Um, like I say, I don't know that I'm answering questions satisfactorily, but I'm just sort of speaking to them as I sort of feel. Um, do you think the time is right to consider relaunching life groups? Um, well, we put this little survey out, and from the 23 responses we've had back so far online, the overwhelming response is, yes, it is time to start life groups back, um, because that's what people are saying. If we started a life group up, then I would go to it. Um, is the general feedback. So it does look like we're turning a corner with that. I'd had some nervousness about it myself, um, and I was chatting with somebody you know, just recently about it, uh, and my nervousness was this, that 
one, I didn't want to go off half-cocked, you know what I mean? Try and get something up and running, and then it just sort of fitters out, and it doesn't go anywhere, because that just ends up with disappointment for, for everybody, I think. Secondly, I'd, we'd, we'd set up the gathering as sort of a, a temperature gauge to try and see what level of interaction did people want mid-week. Mid um, and, you know, that started off reasonably well, and then it sort of ebbed away quite a lot. And so that didn't fill me with a, a great deal of sort of optimism to try and think, well, if, if I can't even get a, a core group of people together, you know, for, for one group on a Wednesday, then what hope is there of, of, of setting up small groups? However, you know, the feedback from the little survey that we've done, and this is why it's important to me that, that you do it if you haven't, uh, is saying that people would like that. Um, and so, you know, I think if people would like that and they're up for that and, and people are prepared to sort of commit to being a part of that, then, then absolutely that's the way that we would want to go because, you know, I've, I've run myself backwards and forwards with this small group situation and, you know, am I doing right as the pastor? You know, are you running the church properly? You know, why haven't you got this all sorted out yet? All this sort of stuff goes through your head. Um, but, you know, the feedback seems to be quite positive. So I think we will certainly be looking at that more seriously going forward. So, yeah, thank you. Um, question three. Uh, the James Webb Telescope is helping us to learn more and more about the origins of the universe. If at some point we discover other equally sentient life forms on other planets, excuse me, uh, what does that say about our faith and does it change your view of our creator? Do you think the whole universe of 200 billion trillion stars was created 13.8 billion years ago uh, just for humans on Earth. Anybody want to answer? <laughs> um, so, so, well, here, here we go. Um, I think your first point of thought is this, that when you read through the Genesis story, you, you've got to recognize that your opinion of that story is your opinion of that story. Okay. Don't assume that every Christian interprets Genesis in the way that you interpret Genesis. That's the first thing. When I was at college, which is a long, long time ago, um, our um, teacher there taught us that there are several what he called schools of thought around uh, the creation story. And in principle, there are around about four. Four different ways that in the main people interpret the story of Genesis, from whether it was literally seven days and 24-hour days. Um, this teacher that I used to listen to, he said that, you know, they weren't 24-hour days, but you should read them as theological days, which I always thought was quite an interesting uh, view of that. Um, and, and, and then there's a couple of other theories, and then uh, there, there is more of a, you know, uh, theistic evolution uh, perspective. Um, on, on the creation story. And, and if I was to do a poll this morning, which thankfully for you I won't, so you don't have to show what side of the fence you're sitting on. Uh, if I was to do a poll this morning and gave you a paragraph on each of, say, those three or four main views, um, there is no question that there would be a split down the congregation as to what you think about that story and how it was delivered to us. Um, what, what I do know is that Whatever the universe is, and however far the universe extends, Christ fills the whole of that universe. Now, 
as I said, I've not really done much prep for this morning in terms of like looking up scriptures and trying to you know, put an argument together for my opinions. I'm just sort of reading it and thinking about it and talking about it as, as we go. However, I did sit down yesterday morning and, and, and um, I read through, uh, through the book of Ephesians um, because the book of Ephesians is a beautiful book to read um, and, and it's so rich um, and, and so wonderful. And as I was reading through the book of Ephesians, I did come across these verses that I thought speak so well to the, to the broad sweep of, of this particular uh, question. Um, and, and it says here, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascend mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So that's Christ. That is the cosmic Christ. We may have narrowed down Jesus to some little convenient understanding of who he is. But the scriptures are saying he is the Christ and he fills the whole universe. Now, I have a little theory behind this, but I've not got time to talk to you about it today. So that'll have to be for another occasion. What I would say to you, particularly for those of you who have the responsibility of parenting, and particularly if you are finding some challenges in the area of parenting your children to do with issues around evolution, the origins of life, whether that's compatible with faith, etc., etc. The best thing that I can do is to say to you, there are at least four ways in which theologians and biblical scholars and the church fathers have interpreted the church story down through the centuries. So don't hold out as if yours is the only one, because it's not. And if you need help in getting into that evolutionary side of understanding faith, the universe, etc., there is a wonderful, wonderful website called biologos.com. And biologos.com was set up by a gentleman called Francis Collins, who is a serious believer and a scientist. He was involved intrinsically in the development of the Genome Project, along with the Bill Clinton establishment at the time, and he was the lead voice on that. And he set up this BioLogos. He's written a book called The Fingerprint of God, um, and I found that book particularly helpful, and I found the website really illuminating and fascinating to read. In fact, I was dialoguing with somebody on Facebook the other day and just suggested that they went and had a look at that. It's not, it's not my responsibility to push down your throat what you should believe in an area of scripture where there are several thoughts, schools of thought. My responsibility is to open up all of those schools of thoughts so that you can over time draw your own opinion and hold that opinion and hold it with conviction. That's how I believe that I should teach the scriptures. On issues of orthodoxy, of course, that's you know, a different matter, but, but that's, that's the way that I would view it. And biologos.com is a great resource if you're wanting to think a little bit about that. Um, are there other life forms on another planet? I have absolutely no idea, and I am agnostic on the matter um, because I just do not know. Um, uh, years ago, I would have said absolutely, definitely not. Um, 
And that's probably still where I would sit if I was pushed on it. Um, but what do I know? What do I know? And if it turns up that there is, then what I do know is that this Christ fills the whole universe in every way. And he will fill it there as well. Okay, slide four, or question four, is this one. Do you have any thoughts around poverty theology? I wish people would send an easier question sometimes. <laughs> Example, Proverbs speaks a lot about hard work bringing wealth in a context where the, the ideology of jubilee redistributed wealth and each generation could start afresh. How can we encourage churches to break out of our middle-class molds and see the privilege of house owners versus renters, for example, and just how wide the gap is getting? Wow. That's a tough question, isn't it? Um, somebody once said to me, I don't believe in equality of outcome, but I do believe in equality of opportunity. And, and it struck me that that's a good place to start from. You see, if, if I came and gave everybody in this room £100,000 and said, take that £100,000 and talk to me again in 12 months' time, what's happened with that £100,000? Some of you would be broke. Oh, I just spent it on this and that, and I couldn't resist this temptation and that temptation. Some of you would have invested it. Some of you would have buried it. And that's life. That's life. I think what we have a responsibility for as Christian people is to, wherever we possibly can, create the foundation of justice in an unjust world. And I think that includes us taking a very deep look into our own levels of privilege. We all sit in this room this morning and we're all privileged more than we could possibly imagine. Some of you have different experiences of different parts of the world in a way that I've never been party to. My privilege goes deep. Uh, not that we were brought up with lots of money because we, we weren't. Um, so I do think we have a responsibility to act towards justice and to champion that and to work for that in our own lives. I think this is also true, that we all intrinsically want a better life for ourselves, and if we have kids or spouses or whatever, whatever, for them as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course you want that. My boy's at home coughing his guts up still, slight, maybe slightly better, thankfully. There's nothing I'd want more after four or five weeks for that to just stop. It's horrible. How can we not feel that for those that are closest to us? What I think about money is this, that you must make a decision as to what level of income in your life you are happy with. And be true to yourself. Don't look at anybody else. Don't think of anybody else's situation. Ask yourself the question, if I was successful with my life, what level of income would I want to achieve in order to be happy? And then when you achieve that, 
think about now what is my responsibility with the rest particularly if you are in that privileged position of high earning maybe you've inherited wealth maybe your investments have served you well don't be dishonest to yourself if that means having a fancy car go and buy your fancy car be true to yourself because if you are not true to yourself you will not be able to act with integrity you must be ruthlessly ruthlessly honest with yourself and then when you've done that say now what is my responsibility in this world and in the meantime tithe on your income um, because somebody, well you know is tithing right well I've got opinions on that as well of course um, if I'm having a debate with myself as to why I should give less than 10% because I'm led by grace. That's a really complex question to ask because grace always goes further, it never goes less. Anyway, there we go. So let's move on. And um, like I said, I don't know whether I'm answering any of these questions, but at least I'm reading them to you so you know the questions I've been asked myself. Um, so uh, question four. Coming up on the screen. Uh, can you put it on the big screen so I can read it from there? Because I just phrased it differently here. Okay, question five. We are a gay couple who became Christians watching Hope Online during the pandemic. We've been together for four years and are saving to get married. We have grown so much as Christians and men and as a couple. We read and pray daily and try to keep Jesus central to our lives and to love our neighbours. Every week we see criticism of gays, even faithful monogamous couples from Christians. It is really disheartening when we just want to live our lives. It feels like we have so much to prove to be considered legitimate Christians. Do you have any advice on resilience and heart attitude, please, when gays think we're whack for being Christian and a lot of Christians give us a hard time for being gay? It sometimes feels like we're not really part of two communities that we love, stuck between and not at home in either. A few times we have wanted to give up on faith, but Jesus draws us back. We are super grateful for your kindness and teaching. It's always challenging and hits home, yet always graceful. Anyway. If these gentlemen ever come to hope, because they watch online, I want them to know that I'll be waiting to welcome them at the door. And if nobody else wants to sit with them, there are two seats next to me. What else can I say? I'm not saying that the conversation around sexuality is easy. God knows it's not. The Church of England have spent the past part of a decade trying to get to a position on it. And the Archbishop of Canterbury is probably pleased neither group in the position he's taken. 
We're just people, folk. Trying to find our way through a difficult world. My position in life is not to reject people. My responsibility as a Christian pastor is to welcome them. And that's what I'll do. And if people have to fall out with me in the process, then they'll have to fall out with me. We've talked about this quite a lot over the Q&A sessions over the years, and it always often, you know, it becomes a question that's raised, and you'll have heard me talk at length about this, and you can always go back and listen to some of those other Q&A sessions, because I'm conscious of time, um, and don't really want to or need to go into it anymore now, because, you know, I've, I've made my thinking clear, um, and I'm not sure that my thinking has, has changed. Um, I have to be careful what I say, don't I? Because some of you are sitting there hating me for what I'm saying, and some of you are sitting there loving me for what I'm saying. It's not easy pastoring in this world, you know. But I do have to think that love has to be my trump card. Because what other cards have I got to play? This is the conclusion I made a few years ago. And you can call me a hypocrite when I tell you. And I think I'm still in the same position now, so I might as well be frank with you. I made the decision, or at this juncture in my life anyway, I'd come to the conclusion that in all consciousness, in my best conscience, I wouldn't be able to officiate over a gay wedding. Sometimes I wished I could, to be honest. Sometimes I wish my conscience would go that degree to allow me to do it, and people would just... But equally, I would always go to a gay wedding. You say, that's hypocrisy. I am that hypocrite. Trying to walk through a complex, difficult world. If you could do some of the things to make it easier for me, like take same-sex attraction away so that it's not there, pray it away, curse it away, whatever, well, that would be a different thing, wouldn't it? But you can't. And I can't. So I can't pastor the world, can't pastor my parish from the context of what I might want it to be. I must pastor people from the context of which they present themselves to me. And I must put love at the beginning and the end of that conversation. There you go. Right. Question number six, and we're going to come into land. Um, so uh, let, let, me ju- let me just have a quick look at this one. Well quick look at this one hmm. was Jesus woke the Merriam-Webster added the word to its dictionary in 2017 defining it as aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues especially issues of racial and social justice the Oxford dictionary adopted it the same year defining it as originally well informed up to date now chiefly alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice was Jesus woke I doubt it Was Jesus conservative? I wouldn't have thought so. Was Jesus liberal? Not to my mind. 
Was Jesus labour? No. Jesus Christ was Jesus Christ. He sits outside of definition. That would be my starting point. If by woke you mean, should we have a heart for those who are discriminated against and bring them openly and warmly into the fold of Christ? Absolutely. Where might you go to start that conversation? Well, you could start with the Good Samaritan. And you probably wouldn't need to go much further than that to get to a place of what our attitude should be towards other people. Was Jesus woke? No. Jesus was Jesus. I'm not going to try and categorize him. Should I be woke in the sense of being loving and open and welcoming and alert to issues of racial and social injustice in the world in which we live? Absolutely. Because I approach this world from a real place of privilege. And often I have no clue. No clue how the rest of the world has to navigate its challenges. Sometimes the world feels like a really evil place to me. I know I'm getting older, and I can be melancholic, and therefore I can get myself down in the dumps, and obviously I spent half the night throwing up, so I'm not at my best, but... um, Gosh. It feels like there's so much evil in the world. You know, when you look at the TV and the wars and just the simple disregard for human life, surely if I can bring a drop into the ocean of that pain, then that is my responsibility. I don't ask to be categorized for that, but I will do my best as God's grace strengthens me. Slide seven. This is the last one. I'm going to hand over to Andrew. What do you think the Christian response should be to asylum seekers reaching our shores via small boats? And is there anything in the teachings of Christ that supports this response? I'm often grateful that I'm not in government. I'm often grateful that I'm not in the civil service. People sitting around tables trying to work all this stuff out. I'm often grateful that I can step away from these questions and not have to answer them. But what I do know is that if compassion is not the driving force of society, then we are heading in a way that is anti-Christ. And I'm not saying that that doesn't raise its challenges. Next week, I've got a lady called Edith, who's a Nigerian lady who sought asylum in the UK and came here originally to study, and now she's here with her husband and family. And and they're doing really well, and one of the children's been educated at Cambridge, and she set up an organisation to help um, asylum seekers. And, And so I've asked her to come next week um, she's uh, one of the curates up at uh, Holy Trinity. Because uh, you just need to tell me your story. Brilliant. What was your experience? She talks about how dehumanizing it was. How you could, on the flick of a finger, be moved from one place in one part of the country to the next. And the challenges that it brought. And it led her to set up a charitable organization to help other people. This is a really, you know, top person we're talking about. And I thought, you know what? We need to listen to stories like that. Whatever you think of it, you just need to allow people to tell their stories as they've experienced it 
and allow it to shape our thoughts and our opinions. If somebody's got in a dinghy to sail 26 miles across a channel at the risk of losing their life, they've got to be in a pretty desperate situation to do that. And I know there's money tied in with it and all the money racketeering, and that's one of the issues that's, you know, being talked about. We had a lady with us in our congregation. She got moved from Nottingham down to Birmingham. Just like that. She came here on a dinghy. Managed to sail across. Nearly lost her life doing it. How desperate do you have to be to do that? And how privileged, how privileged are you not to have to do it? And that's how we should start the conversation. If that was your mom, your daughter, your child, how would you feel about that? And allow that uncomfortable question to be the starting point of working through the complex issues. And move forward from there. Let's not have people risking their lives on the channel. Let's let compassion lead the way. And if the church has a voice in any area of society, surely it has to be the voice of compassion. And that's the voice that we need to speak with. That's it. They're the questions. So... uh, Can I just ask one thing? The next time we do a Q&A, can you please send me a few easier ones? <laughs> so that at the end of it, people are not wondering whether to come and speak to me or not. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew.